Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith. Your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. On today's episode of Unmet Need, Shig Tanaka talks about product design. He gives advice for aspiring builders on how they can launch a career making medical device and healthcare products, and also speaks to the entrepreneurs figuring out how to build their first product or prototype so that they can raise capital and ultimately make their vision a reality. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I am your host, Jeff Smith. Today's guest on episode number five is Shig Tanaka. Shig is the Vice President of Research and Development at Providence Medical Technology. He started his career with a degree in product design at Stanford University. He went on to work at Spec Design, leading their medical products team, and was also one of the principal engineers of the M6 cervical disc arthroplasty at Spinal Kinetics. Shig was the Managing Director of Prospect Health, a healthcare incubator. Today, Shig runs R&D at Providence. We've worked together for a long time. Shig, so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, good talk again. These are a lot of fun, especially because you and I have been working together for 12 years now. Hard to believe. And products that I've been involved with building, I was thinking about it. There's really aren't any where you weren't involved. (laughs) So (laughs) I go back to 2008, and it's really going to be the backdrop for this show. Dr. McCormick and I, who was a guest earlier, you know, we had an idea for a product. We were looking for a product consultancy at the time you were at Spec Design, and we interviewed a dozen or so. And ultimately, we pitched you to take our business, and thank goodness you did. But from there, in addition to developing the first D-Trax facet system, when we were developing the Monos incisionless carpal tunnel, that was you. And then when we wanted to start our incubator, we begged and pleaded and eventually convinced you to run Prospect Health. And then really the, the first exit that we had together as a team was you not just running Prospect, but actually being the designer, quality system builder, IP lead, really everything to develop a very novel cervical cage. So it's exciting to have you on the show. We get to talk together a lot, unfortunately not as much recently, but before we get into all the great stuff you do on developing products, you know, take us back. Take us back to young Shig. And you know, where were you born? What was it like growing up where you grew up? What were some of the highlights of your childhood? So I'm originally from Japan. I'm actually still a Japanese citizen, so with a green card here. I grew up in Japan until I was 10, and then came to the US with my family. And loved it so much that didn't want to leave, even when my family went back home. So the compromise was to go to the American school in Japan, which is an international high school in Tokyo. So from there, came to the States for uh, university. Didn't really know what to expect. Uh, only thing I knew was I want to build things or do engineering is when I came over here. And uh, lucky for me, I think, just in my life and career was the finding product design program at Stanford because my interest like early on was doing mechanical things, building things, but also art and design in general. Really didn't know what that meant. So I thought it was engineering, but when I discovered product design, it just felt like the perfect fit for me. The program was still young back then, um, but it was a very small, tight-knit group. 
which also was a great boon for me in a, in a big university. I think that, that did a lot to just formulate my career, obviously, but just the way I wanted to work in general. That's the big thing that I got from my time there. So early on, you know, my parents were really free, let me go free and do whatever I wanted to do. And one thing I wanted to do was do well <laughs> in the things that I did, luckily. Why? And uh, Why was that such a motivator? I think, it, I think it's a drive to, I, my theory is that it's a drive to feel good. So it's really not about doing it for somebody else. So you are doing it for somebody else, but it's because you like the feeling of somebody being happy for you, for example. Right. And that's kind of my theory about doing good things is I feel good when somebody says, thank you, or you know, job well done. So it's kind of a selfish motive in a way, but because it's coming from yourself, it helps you to just kind of sustain it rather than simply doing it because somebody told you to. That is my philosophy. I don't know if that's correct. Like so that's driven me in school, you know, doing what I do in life overall. I call it being selfish, but you know, in a way, it's making sure that you're doing things that you want to do and makes you happy in the end. And hopefully that ties into doing good things. Do you think back early so, on when the first time you did something great and then people were happy and you, as you say, selfishly liked that feeling? Like, when did that start for you? <laughs> It's tough to remember, but I remember building a lot of things for school and everything like Legos, right, for example, and coming up with a, a cool list that I came up with and people will be like, wow, how'd you do that? That's really great. And obviously it makes the kid feel good and you want to do more. The other thing is when you learn new things, like when I first learned computers way back when, when there's Atari computers, when I'm aging myself, I learned like basic, you know, programming and other things myself and you know, my grandma or my mom would be like, wow, how did that happen? How'd you do that? And it makes you motivated to do more things, to learn more things on your own. So I was fairly self-motivated in that way to just pick up new things and learn new things because I wanted to know. I would ask people, but I'd rather just research and find out myself. So you know, the last that really guest, helped to keep things moving. Oh, sorry to interrupt. The last guest, someone you know, Dr. Chris Shimanov, we were talking about how he got into medicine and ultimately to become an mm -hmm. entrepreneur. And he said that I always looked at people that build things, whatever it was, they had an idea and they built something with a lot of wonder. And it's interesting as a child, because Legos, I mean, I remember it was one of the first things I remembered about spec design and the environment you helped create there was there were Legos, it was part of the branding. And as long as I've known you, there's always been a Lego on your desk or you know, with your, with your kids talking about Legos. So you find out you can build things. The people that matter a lot to you are impressed and happy when they see this amazing thing mm -hmm. you've built, whether it's something with Legos or now you're using Atari and writing some computer code. So when you fast forward to being in the States and your parents say, we're going to go back to Japan, what was the discussion like where you said you want to stay in the States and how did that go? Yeah, I mean, it was my father's business that took us there and it was going to take us back. So it was a normal thing, you know, after six years. But I spent uh, age, age 10 through 16, we were in Hawaii. It was just the right fit for me. I was not a conventional Japanese kid looking back back then. I think just the U.S. school system especially really was a nice fit for myself and my brother. Yeah, we said, oh, why are we going back? Well, because the family's going back. And I said, no, we don't want to go back. We actually had this really bad image of a Japanese school system. That was probably the other reason. So the, again, the compromise was, we have to go back. I can't leave you here. But there's this international school that's an American high school system. Why don't we put you guys there? He said, okay, we'll try that out. That was actually, again, a really good experience for me because it brought all these different kids from, so 
in in Japan, it was with Japanese kids when I grew up, and then in Hawaii, it was American or Hawaiian kids. But then international school had people from Europe, you know, Japanese kids that spoke English like I did. There's a few American kids that their first language was Japanese, right? They actually spoke Japanese better than English. There's all these different elements, and it was a very new new thing for me. So that was very exciting, and it was a good education too. I think it was a really good school. I'm, I'm glad my parents were able to kind of accommodate us that way. Again, I didn't really think of it at the time, but looking back, it was sort of a big decision for them to not put us back into a Japanese school system and stay in Japan. Right? So uh, I, sh- I should probably thank them more for that, for, for what they've done for me. The international school was in Japan or was in the States? It's in Tokyo. Yeah. In Tokyo. Gotcha. And, yeah. did, and did your family, were they living in Tokyo also? This town next to you, a little bit west of Tokyo, but pretty close. Yeah. I think it's now 118 years old. It's a really old uh, international school, one of the oldest ones, uh, I think, in Asia. So, What's the name of the school? American School in Japan, ASIJ. That's nice. <laughs> very straightforward name. Yeah. And so at that point, you were 16 years old. When I went back, I was 16. Yeah. So right after ninth grade is when I was going back. Something about that education worked out because you applied and got into Stanford University, one of the most selective schools in the United States. Was SIJ set up for college placement? How did that all come about? They were, but again, you know, my parents not knowing anything about the American school system and me being 16, right? I had really no idea about the American college or university system. So there was a college counselor there that helped students and he was the one that said, have you looked at these schools? Do you know about this? I had no idea what Stanford was or any, any of the schools, really. It was really the counselor's office saying, hey, you should kind of try out these schools. I mean, again, looking back, really, I, I should have probably looked into it more. <laughs> but it was really, okay, so there's Stanford. There's this place called MIT. I've heard of MIT. That sounds like a nice school. I'll apply there. It, it, was, it was really like that. I think it was a lot less competitive back then compared to now. But again, I was lucky to have that person there to help me out because there's nobody else in my family that could help me out. So. so do you remember that person's name? Mr. Kraus. Mr. Kraus at SIJ. On behalf yeah. of Providence and all the people that benefited from SHIG, thank you, Mr. Kraus. So glad it worked out that way. <laughs> when you were in high school, were you doodling and doing art and really enjoying that? Were you more into math? Like where, where were your interests at 16, 17 years old? So my thing in high school was math. I really liked math. I was good at it. And then just doing different things, yeah, like art classes, science, you know, physics. Didn't really get into the sciences too much, like chemistry or biology. Did TV production club, that was really fun. And then just the sports like wrestling. I, had, I did judo for three years. Didn't really get into the arts, like, you know, plays and things like that. It was more, I just wanted something to do by hands. And I, although math isn't that way, but math, I, I just agreed with me. It was just the fun to figure things out. I think that's the thread. I like figuring things out and I really love doing proofs and theories when things work out and you get that nice answer in the end. It's beautiful, right? A lot of people say math is beautiful. It is, it is artwork in a lot of ways, but that was, that was really fun for me. So when you got to Stanford, how long into your experience there as an undergrad did you say like product design could be the fit? When I went in, I was really on this mechanical engineering track. So I started taking the prerequisites. And one thing was I was crushed in math right away. I thought I was good in math. I took some honors classes and got crushed. I was this big. How, what does that so, mean? What, wait, wait, hold on a second. I just can't imagine anyone crushing you in anything. What's an no, example? It, it's really actually another good, yeah, another good 
thing that happened to me, I think, because I was so good in math in high school, right? But it was a very small pond. When I got to Stanford, yeah, you know, I got studied AP classes. I'm good. I'll take this honors, the top level honors calculus class for a freshman, right? And then I go in there and it's like a small class of 12 people with, I always tell the story, but uh, there's a couple of European math champions, kids that's done, you know, advanced physics in middle school or something like that. It was just a different space, right? Coming from this small private high school into this big university where everybody's coming in, even though the international school was very diverse. I mean, this was just a different plane. So I survived it, but it just kind of told me, oh, you know what? I'm definitely not the top dog in this world. <laughs> so it's, it's very humbling in a way. So I'm glad I got that right away. So it was a good, good experience. It was humbling, but it was a good experience. There's this um, book here so that's written by Professor Scott Galloway. Have you ever heard of him? Scott Galloway. Galloway sounds familiar. He has a great YouTube channel, but he's a, he was an entrepreneur and I was a professor at NYU. But he put out a book recently called, I think it's called The Calculus or The, the Algebra of Happiness, something like that. But one of his mm -hmm. principles is if part of your happiness is going to be tied to success, you need to go to the density of talent. If you're in a small town or if you're the best at whatever it is that you do, you got to go to where all the talent is. And at worst, you'll be average around the best and good things will happen. At best, you know, maybe you compete and you're still one of the top dogs. So in your case, you find out that you're not necessarily number one at math. And then what? Well, were, you, were you looking to be the best at something else? Well, I was really kind of looking at what I wanted to do, right? Because I had this vague idea about engineering, mechanical, like hands-on stuff. Uh, but I was taking classes and I did this freshman core that was really hardcore. So it took a lot of time to do. So it wasn't really till sophomore year when I started really seriously looking at okay, what, what I really want to do. I know I'm, a, I know I'm interested in a technical area, but some of the early pure ME classes, uh, you know, theoretical classes like thermal and other things wasn't that engaging for me, right? That was the problem. There was a, a degree fair sort of a thing, sophomore year. And back then product design wasn't a official degree. It was a combined degree. It was called a school of engineering degree. Now it's an official degree program, I think. But they introduced it as, hey, here's this kind of a custom thing where you combine engineering with practical design and coming up with products and, you know, they show all these prototypes. And, and I was just fascinated, right? It was in the, I think it was in an auditorium somewhere. And I just remember coming out saying, well, now I think I found it. It was, it was that quick. It, it just clicked everything for me. And uh, so I think right away, I signed up for that pretty much in that quarter. It was serendipity, but it was really lucky for me that I found it uh, at the time that I did. Stanford, yeah. probably one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world at product design. And when you started the product design path within the School of Engineering, you know, what year was that? So this would have been 90, I went in in 89. So yeah, something 1991, something like that. 1991, so like six or seven years pre-Netscape, four years pre-AOL maybe. And was there, oh, pre everything. Buzz, yeah. was there a buzz about semiconductors and internet and computer or what was the buzz around? Like what was the hot product to design? Well, really it wasn't, it was pre-internet, right? Pretty much that's for it for the, most of the people. Um, we were excited about email. Like we had this station in the dorm, you go and send email, I can send email to people. It's awesome. <laughs> Well, it was still fairly traditional products like TVs, uh, electronics, cars, auto design, right? It was still big. And it was the early days of CAD too. So there's a lot of CAD stations that were very big that you have to 
kind of get any. It, it wasn't. It was before the days of the locked up CAD systems. Shake just so, for the audience that might not know. Can you explain what CAD is? Yeah, it's computated design. Uh, people use it in different ways, but it's to design or sketch out products digitally rather than paper. And I was actually, I think, one of the last classes to do paper engineering drawing class. I think a year or two after me was when they started going digital for creating engineering drawings too. So, so I actually did vellum paper with all the big rulers and it was really fun actually. But, but the, yeah, so it was the early days of the CAD station. So we had classes to learn, you know, what this new technology is. And that was pretty exciting, but still a lot of it is pretty much hands-on machining. It's still, the program still is very hands-on physical stuff, because I think that is still really important to the people there. Like David Kelly, the founder of IDEO was my advisor uh, for the first couple of years. And he was really into getting the, getting a real experience for the students, right? I think some people think it's like, it was almost like a farm system for IDEO to get, for him to get top talent. But what I got out of it was just having this vision of how real products work. So it's not really just theoretical calculations on heat exchangers, but you look for need, um, a need, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and then start designing things, interview people to see what they want, and you actually make your prototypes. And then you think about, okay, how, how would this be mass produced, for example? And how do you uh, set a schedule so that you get done, you know, by the end of the quarter? So a lot of things that I think I use now from a project management standpoint came from the product design program. I think in my view to look at how products get developed and how do you test it, right? And failing and iterating, that was very uh, common. The three years, it was a three year program more or less. I did get a lot out of it, I think. The little bit that I know about product design, it's all from you and Ed and the team. But I remember when we first met at, at SPEC, you're telling me about your background and how you're one of the principal engineers of the M6. And for those that don't know, it's an artificial cervical disc. And the M6 was one of the first or the first disc that attempted to simulate actual range of motion in the neck. So six degrees of motion, I think is, is where it came from. So Shiga designed that with the team at Spinal Kinetics. They had done clinical trials and was already, I think, the number one disc implanted in Europe. So when we met, I was immediately impressed. Like this particular leader knows the anatomy. And then what I really liked about the spec design approach was I didn't understand that you've got this industrial design component. It's like, this is how things feel in your hand and look. And then there's the mechanical engineering, which is what I thought a lot of it would be. But some of the early things that I was excited about with Bruce, there was a discussion about you have to design it for manufacturability. I didn't understand anything about that at the time at all. And then I remember in one of our many phone calls, you need this, and this is hopefully one of the things we can touch on as we start to talk about product design. You have to have, at least at the beginning, the seeds of a quality management system. And I remember vividly on the whiteboard, the fishbone risk assessment. And where it was what, but we were really starting to lay the groundwork for a design history file, have an FMEA, which later on we had all the ingredients we needed to implement our first quality system. So walk us through it. You have this great experience at Stanford and when you're at spec design, what sort of clients were you working with leading the medical team? And what were the projects you liked the best? So I came in to spec after 15 years in medical device in different areas, right? So the company right before that was Sonokinetics. Obviously, I was doing a lot of different things. 
the idea with the medical device product team at spec was to bring exactly like what you were saying, the specific things that you need that are special or specific about medical devices, right? That are different from developing a, a new TV or a new remote control or new consumer product. So that's sort of the specialty that I brought to the table. And a lot of times it is medical device clients that they knew what they're doing, but a lot of times it's people like yourself, entrepreneurs that maybe it's the first time, maybe it's a doctor that has an idea that wants to start a company. So you know that was why we started with, hey, here's kind of how the system should be set. It's gonna help you out in the end, right? Later down the road. And I was really trying to put that into the program so that you make people aware, hey, this is something that you have to do. There's some minimal things that needs to happen and it is going to help you in the end. And as far as the variety of clients, it really varied. There was a lot of bigger companies that just needed a help in one particular part of the product. There was a lot of startups and entrepreneurs either from just starting out or they're at a stage where they proved the concept and they wanted to design their commercial product, for example, and needed some industrial design or product design help. So it was a good variation. Again, that was the fun part with spec is the variation of different things that you can do. And I had a hand in other areas like consumer products and telecom products too. So that was interesting as well. So I think, so the question was what some of the projects I liked. I think the one constant theme is liking the team or the person, right, that you're working with. So it is a business, so you have to kind of take on uh, what you do, but really the, the idea with spec was that, hey, we should be doing things that we enjoy doing so that that really leads to good work, right? And part of it is the interaction between the clients and us. So it's the people that have the, both the drive, I think, and the understanding of how a consulting relationship would work and how realistic product development works. Because there are clients that did not understand it, right? So why, why can't you do this in three days? Well, because it takes two weeks to make this prototype. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but can you do it in three days? And you remember some of the conversations we had, right? And, but the, I think the difference is like, you're able to challenge it and, but then you're able to like, take it in and so understand it. And then the next round we, we do it, you, we have that base. So it's easier to talk through it. So I think having that relationship is, was always important. For me. It was a very personal thing, you know, when you do a, these kind of consultant type work. So you don't want to work for somebody that you don't like, even though you might have to, right? So yeah, so it's those guys I think that I remember the most, more the technical minded and understanding entrepreneur that has a goal, has a set goal, here's what I wanted to do, right? It's tough when you don't have a really set goal. Like, I kind of want to do this. I really know. Can you guys figure it out? And, you know, we, we do that. We kind of figure it out for them too. But when there's a vision, it's easier to say, okay, this is where we can help you. And here's what we can't. So maybe you should go somewhere else for regulatory work, for example, right? Like we talked. It makes everybody's job easier that way. So that clarity of vision, I think is always important. You could say it's like an opportunity for us to make more money by, hey, oh, help you create the vision. But from a product design standpoint, it's tough to work on something that's not defined really well. So we would define it ourselves too. Some of my favorite memories of the spec days, I mean, really, my, I'm not exaggerating my career, when we'd be down in Palo Alto on Page Mill, and you, Ed, Josh, Pete, Martin, and there's just brainstorm, every, all these different ideas. I think it was the phase zero, and anything's on the table. And I, I remember at the time of feeling 
a little insecure or cautious about chiming up because you've got people that are absolute masters at their respective part of the process. And then eventually opening up a little bit, throwing out ideas. And one of the principles or, that I remember from that is there's no dumb ideas, get them out, get them on the whiteboard. And then an hour later, we're looking at this big whiteboard and there are these groupings of ideas. You start to see patterns. And then Bruce and I drive down and you're like, all right, here are the first prototype. That's the most exciting thing as a builder. If you compare, you know, that kind of energy. And I mean, you you've done that so many times and developed so many products that have helped hundreds of thousands of people. That range of different projects compared to what many would say the best cervical disc ever developed. How did the diversity of multiple projects versus solely focused on bringing this PMA, you know, one-of-a-kind product to market? Just to be clear, I, I did come in fairly late to the game. I was the engineering manager there. You know, a lot of it was making sure it works, right? So the basic concept was there. The basic design was there. Uh, when I first came in, it was, how do we make this work, right? Through the million, millions of cycles of testing, you know, some of the how-to figure out these different components. So it was a lot of different problems. It was a singular product, but it was very diverse in the different problems it had, right? I was doing the instrument side and I was doing some of the component side. But I think the, the biggest difference, I think, is just the depth versus breadth, right? So there's the depth that you can go into on this one single product line and you really get into it. You know, you're in it 365 days a year, right? So you're just deep in it. Whereas I think with the consultancy, it's a much faster pace. It's very quick. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months. There's some clients that we, you know, like Providence, where we did it for a long periods of time. It's a different, different mindset, I think. And how you deal with it is the same, but you try to apply what you learn in these singular companies. And then how can you effectively get to the solution that that's needed as effectively and as cost effectively or as quickly as we can. So it was, it, was a, it was a challenge and you got to be the kind of person that likes that. And I do like, it. I, I really actually enjoyed both going deep into a single subject or being diverse. Yeah, I, I did two stints at consultancy. I did my own thing with a partner and also did the, the spec design job. So it's a different part of me that I think I enjoy doing. So I'm not really biased toward one or the other. Well, so if you were talking to an aspiring product designer and someone's in college now and they're excited the way you were about designing products and they're contemplating what their first role should be, what advice would you give to them working for one company or maybe get involved to something with more breadth? Yeah, I actually tend to talk to young guys almost every year, uh, either, you know, friends, kids or somebody that we get through an internship program, things like that. And it's, there's no single answer that I can tell them. The one thing that I know for sure is in this world, I guess at least in medical device engineering, you need to get that experience, right? There's a lot of things you can learn through books and your classes, but until you have a track record, it's a very fairly small world that we live in, in med devices. It's tough for somebody to gauge how well you can do without that track record. So then the question is, how do you get the track record if I'm just starting out, right? So that's always a tough question. What I usually tell people is no matter what method you use, you just got to get your foot in the door where you can show your stuff. Internships obviously is one of the lower bars that you can do. But once you are 
in there to be able to show your thing, no matter how lowly your position is. If you have what it takes, then you have a chance to show it, right? And people need to see what you can actually do in that situation. And you can't really get that from an interview. And so it could be a consultancy where you get to see what you can do, or it could be a big company where they do have the resources to take in a lot of new people and give you that opportunity to work on a certain thing. It might be a very small part because it's a big company, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's really a fit issue, but the key is to just find an opportunity where you can put your foot in the door. That's really what you got to do. It could be references from a friend or a summer internship. It's tough to get started otherwise. I can see it's not an easy way to start. You know, people are looking for experience, and it's just a dichotomy where, okay, how do you get experience in order to show that you have experience? One of the things I've always admired about you, Shig, over the years is you're very generous with your time in teaching others. And when we've had interns at Providence, watching the development and how much time, you know, you're really coaching them along despite being incredibly busy, you know, leading the department and having all your own work to do. What is it about teaching for you that is so satisfying? I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier about what makes me happy, right? Uh, I like, I want to enjoy working. Again, it's a selfish motive. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy is working with people that I like or having a good environment, working environment. And a big part of that is the, the team, not just the engineering technical team, but the team overall. So if there's, yeah, if there's a way I can help with that, you know, even with the, the mood of the company or whatever it might be, I'm all for that. So I, again, it's a way for me to enjoy my life. <laughs> is to kind of help people be people enjoy their life right so i like seeing people happy therefore i'll try to help you get happy and one of the things is you know, making sure that the young guys have the get the experience that even the interns like the summer interns we've had my main thing is they need to get something out of the internship you know it shouldn't be just us needing a hand for three months if we're going to do it i want to make sure that they get something out of it and that's the first thing i tell them is make sure that you are trying to get something out of this internship and we're here to help you with that. The FACET testing model, the last intern at Providence developed, watching that presentation was really, for me, a lot of fun. I know the hand that you and Chris had in it, but then people that you have developed as engineers, their role in teaching an intern, and then to see the final product be very impressive in a short period of time. I was happy for your team and my own selfishness. It was really cool to see the role that our company was playing in this really bright young woman's step to the next thing in her education. So that's big. If there's such a thing as virtuous selfishness, I think you found it and I like it. <laughs> yes, my theory. It's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, so that's for the, the project designer. Now, for the builders that are listening, they have an idea, they think there's an unmet need, they're ready for the long haul and they wanna put their heads down, but they're not product designers. They don't have engineering skills, they can't use CAD. What should they do to get that first prototype? And what should that final product be for a prototype so they can raise money? That could be a hundred different answers, but it's really different now compared to 20, you know, 30 years ago. Just the tools available are very different now. And I think the biggest difference is the 3D printing or 3D printers and the availability of that. And that just opens up so many doors for people starting out and doing prototypes or products in general, not just net device, but any product. Again, that's a great tool, but how do you use that tool? I think that's always going to be the question. 
I think the key is to find the partner of some kind that's going to help you with that step. So I think having that idea, great. But you, you kind of need a partner that can help you develop it into a form that's tangible or that's workable. If you don't have it, then you're always going to be just thinking through it in your head. And maybe you hire out somebody temporarily to make a quick prototype for you. But then it just kind of ends there. And it doesn't really cycle through the, the different steps, I think. So it could be a individual person, consultants that are available like that. It could be a group like Spec. It could be a true partner, like a co-founder type of thing. But I think the combination of the, the visionary and the, the technical execution, I think is always a good combination to have. A lot of people have that you know, within themselves, but a lot of times it's kind of a combination of two or three different people. And I think that's really important to find that right partner early on. For people that are building their idea and their team, one of the things that investors look for, some investors, is they like this, as Shig, as you're describing, a business, commercial, go-to-market-minded founder or co-founder, and then also a technical co-founder. Because if you have the combination of those skill sets, and maybe it's three co-founders or four, but if the co-founders primarily incentivized by their founding equity and they want to make this idea, the vision a reality, the people investing in those teams, they know that all the skill sets that are required to kind of get that first push, they're available in the founding team. In the situation where that doesn't happen, so I can speak to that when Bruce and I started, we didn't have a technical co-founder. And you just jogged my memory that we ended up meeting Nathan Meyer at Handtel. Yeah. And it was an introduction. And Nathan, for anyone that wants to look him up, he's always traveling the world. And he's a mad scientist, entrepreneur, extraordinaire, great guy. He helped us build this thing in this little duck bill. And it was just a little plunger mm -hmm. that put a little implant into a joint. And that's how we raised our seed round. And it was only because we could actually take the concept from a PowerPoint slide to putting an implant in a facet joint that we could actually raise the money because it was just real enough for the true angel type investors that you know, take a, a big bet on an unproven team. It was with the proceeds of that round that we could go engage with spec design. That's a really great message, Shigs. Let me see if I have this right. If you have an idea and you're not a technical person, one, get a technical co-founder. Two, hire as a contractor, someone with product design engineering capabilities. Leverage 3D printing because it just keeps getting better and cheaper. And then finally, if you can't find that, look to partner with people that don't necessarily want equity. They don't want to be co-founders. They just see something in you and are willing to offer their time to help you get to the next step. Yeah, and unless you're a you know, purely digital product, I'm just a firm believer in the physical object, the power of it. And you just got to start doing that as early as you can. If it takes just somebody to just come in and build it for you, that's better than not doing it. But if you can get a very invested partner, I think that's a very good situation where, yeah, it's going to help you with your investment presentations or just iterations into where the product can go. Right. helps push it along. Nathan and Hanson was the early one to have that prototype. And that's how I saw what the product was. I could visualize what it was going to be. And then with us, it took it to the next step of, all right, here's the whole instrument set. Try this out. Physical objects are big for me. <laughs> well, it looks like we're in the right business. All right. Well, Shig, this has been a lot of fun. Are you ready to go to the vault? Yeah, I can try. <laughs> all right, let's do it. So first thing that comes to your mind. So first question, in the last year, is there a book movie, TV show, blog post, anything that you read or watched that had a profound impact on you and you're thinking about it regularly today? 
It was a fairly recent read, actually. It's Seven E's. It's an old book. It's an old sci-fi book by Neil Stephenson. So Seven E's, like Eve and Adam and Eve. Yeah, it's it's a really great sci-fi about Earth getting destroyed and then people surviving for years and years in orbit. And again, it just speaks to just the problem solving and the the technical side of things. There's just this very vast concept of what it means to be a certain type of person and how does that person work with another type of person. You know, technical problem solving versus emotional uh, politics and that's something I'm always fighting too, is how do you balance that between the emotional side of things and the technical side of things? Even though that I'm only reading it now, that was an interesting read for sure. And that's by Neil Stevenson? Stevenson, yeah. All right, so Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Other than your parents and Mr. Krause, who's one person throughout your life that saw your potential and has been a mentor or someone that's really encouraged you throughout your development? my old boss at my first company, General Surgical Innovation. So her name is Janine. She's the one that really, I think, took me in this direction of the team centric. You got to like what you get. You want to, you got you to gotta like what you do sort of philosophy. And she just kind of took me in personally and was a good friend. And she was just a really good mentor to me. And she's actually my neighbor. She's like five minutes away from me right now. So her and her family has been just been a great part of my life since college. Next question. In your current workflow as a product designer and vice president of R&D, what is one tool, could be software, could be equipment that you use every day or, and you can't imagine working without it? You know, surprisingly enough, it's the Asana product that, that we use. It's actually something that's been really helping me to organize the 30 different things that I'm involved in every day, right? Even if it's just a list of things that are happening, it just gives me one place to go to, to either take notes, to remind myself to do things. Just, I like organization in that way. I know there's pros and cons about software like that, but that's, that's really been helping me out. All right, last question. So as a product designer today, when you look out and you're trying to make new medical products that are gonna help patients, what do you see from a product designer perspective as the biggest unmet need? I would say it's still the global outreach beyond the, the industrialized nations, I think. And that's been talked about for a while, but it's really just going to keep growing. How do you provide medical services or cures to the majority of the people? Right? We live in a small bubble here. It's still a big problem trying to get basic medical services out there, surgeries, you know, ultrasonic, uh, ultrasound uh, diagnosis, things like that. So I do still think that's a, on that need. How do you globalize the use of top-notch medical devices, even basic medical devices, really? I've always been interested and curious about that area. Okay, folks, you heard it here. Favorite book, Seven Eves, some interesting points on organizational and teamwork development. Mentor that saw your potential early on, Janine Robinson, one of your first managers. Tool you couldn't live without is the collaborative software called Asana. And finally, the biggest unmet need in product design and healthcare is figuring out a way to take design and affect other populations outside of the developing world. Well, Shig, I appreciate you going to the vault with us. Thanks for being on Unmet Need. Yeah, thank you.